This episode is brought to you by Gorgeous. Gorgeous is the leading customer support platform built for e-commerce brands, helping merchants unlock revenue and deliver exceptional customer service. This episode is brought to you by Okendo. Over 5,000 of Shopify's fastest growing retailers trust Okendo to capture high impact reviews, showcase customer experiences, and drive conversions. Stay tuned for some special offers from our amazing sponsors exclusively for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. Hello, everyone. It's Lee Green, and welcome back to the Stairway to CEO podcast. It's my mission to bring you real, honest, and unfiltered interviews with some of the most innovative founders and CEOs from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 113 of the Stairway to CEO podcast. I'm your host, Lee, and today I spoke with Sophia Laurel, the co-founder and co-CEO of Tiny Organics. Tiny Organics is an early childhood nutrition and wellness company that introduces babies and toddlers to their first 100 flavors through organic, plant-based, fresh frozen meals. In this episode, Sophia shares her journey from growing up in Finland as the youngest of three siblings to working at Deutsche Bank in New York and pursuing her master's degree at NYU to becoming an entrepreneur in residence at Human Ventures Startup Studio and launching Tiny Organics with her co-founder, Betsy Four. We talk about how they validated the concept for Tiny Organics by testing meal flavors with 100 families in Brooklyn, Sophia's non-traditional path to becoming an entrepreneur, and the challenges she faced in scaling the business. If you like what you're hearing on the Stairway to CEO podcast, we'd love it if you left us an awesome review. And don't forget to click subscribe to get updates on when we publish new episodes every Tuesday morning. You can follow us on Spotify, or you can check us out at stairwaytoceo.com. Until next time. I hope you enjoy this episode. Sophia, thanks so much for joining us on the show today. I'm really excited to hear your story in building tiny organics. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Lee. I'm super excited to be here. Yes. And um, I love the product. You sent it over. Thank you so much. And my son has been enjoying it. It is quite the adult like palate. You know, I eat it. I'm like, oh, he didn't finish it. I will eat this. (laughs) Normally with like the baby blends or like mushy food, I'm like, okay, trash. Like I don't want to be eating that. But no, this is like so sophisticated of a palate that I'm like, yeah, if he doesn't like it, perfect. It's great. (laughs) It's not mushy food either though. You have them in like the tiny bite sizes or even a little bigger. So it's really cool. Absolutely. I love that you're saying that, Lee, because that's the whole the whole idea is I won't go on my rant just yet, but it's a myth that baby food is needs to either be pureed or or very sweet. Um, you know, so we really are tried to, like you said, introduce different cultures to food. Have I, I'm sure I'm sure maybe your son was enjoying some of our best sellers, but like coconut curry and Valencian paella, ratatouille, and all those great. Yeah, flavors my that husband we was like, "Is he allowed <laughs> to have this?" And I was like, "I think so." You know? <laughs> so oh, I didn't, definitely did not have curry when I was a baby. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the thing is, it's like that's why I it's it's so exciting to be building what we're building because that's exactly it. We're introducing different textures and flavors to children um, and different spices as well. 
was no no added salt, no added sugar ever. But um, yeah, it's a, it's a myth that baby spices. food can't be can't be. Yeah, exactly. The can't be. It's a myth that baby food can't be like interesting flavors. So right, yeah, that's awesome. So where are you from originally? Where did you grow up? Um, I'm from Finland, actually, born and raised in Helsinki. My family's still there. Uh, my brother and sister both actually split their time between Helsinki and Germany, but otherwise, everyone's there. I try to visit, you know, three to four times a year. It's uh, it was it was a great place to grow up in. What was it like growing up there? I think people read about Scandinavia, and it, a lot of it is true. Where it is really, you know, an incredible education system, and it's very safe, great healthcare system as well, and kind of, I think. Early on, I think I was raised with the, just with the values of like women and men can both do anything they want. Like it's very, um, it's very equal from that perspective. Our prime minister currently is, I think she's 36 or 37. uh, So kind of my age range. uh, And the parliament is is all women. But yeah, it's a great place to grow up in. I think the reason why I ended up moving was also because I did feel like there was maybe a limit to what you could achieve. Like it's a small, it's just, you know, it's a small community, but I think there's a real beauty to it. Um, and I think again, those types of values that you grow up with and this belief that you can do anything um, really kind of, I think has carried me through. What did you want to be when you grew up? Like what kind of kid were you? What were you into? Uh, I was definitely, I was a, I was a tomboy, which is kind of, strange right now to think about uh, but um, I always wanted to wear like my mom we lived in London when I was younger and my mom wanted to dress me in like these Laura Ashley dresses which is a brand from UK uh, these floral dresses and I only wanted to wear like Batman you know t-shirts and uh and Batman I was, you were into Batman <laughs> I was into Batman and then and I broke my arm the only like injury I've had in my life was when I was playing Donatello so one of the teenage Ninja Turtles in Finland, actually, in an, on an icy, I think on an icy, uh, I don't know, in the park. And I fell, I fell on my arm, but definitely was a tomboy. I'm trying to think like what I wanted to be when I so grew up. So you were into the Ninja Turtles too? Yes. I was totally into them. I was a little bit of a tomboy <laughs> for sure, but not wearing Batman shirts. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That's funny. So you, did you have siblings and what did your parents do? Yeah, so I come from a very academic family. So my dad was the university and the dean of, a law professor at the the university and then the dean of one of the universities. And then my mom was a Montessori teacher. And Montessori very much is kind of just parallel to what we're building at Tiny around raising independent thinkers and eaters. My siblings are both artists. So my brother is a pretty well-known jazz composer and musician in Finland and in Germany. And then my sister is a playwright and a novelist, also pretty well known. So I feel like this, this, I've thought about this a lot. Like I think in our family wasn't like a set career path that we were, you know, guided to do or directed to do. It was more just like kind of like creativity, I think was, you know, abundant in our family. And I think that's probably where my, you know, my passion for entrepreneurship came from. Um, or this idea that we're here, I believe, one time. And I wasn't thinking these things when I was like 11 years old, but how can we create me, me most, the most meaningful impact, you know, in the world? So I think that's why I never really, I think back and I don't think I had like these dreams of becoming a more like a, I, I, I was always open to a non, non-traditional career path. Yeah. So what were your first couple jobs like in high school and college? 
Yeah, I uh, I worked at a at a clothing store in Finland, and I worked at a coffee shop as well at the airport. Uh, and I remember bumping into like my old school friend, and I was like, it was interesting because it's it's I I definitely we like my mom instilled in us like the value of hard work, and always wanted us to also you know get get you know get good grades and ultimately get into university and get get good degrees but prior to that we were always working like my sister worked in a post office and my brother I think my brother probably was playing his guitar in his free time but but generally like we all worked um and then my first job like real job was actually at the Finnish embassy in London it was more of a traineeship but it was I worked at the press office and that was really cool was in charge of kind of the content on the website. And, and again, always about kind of communications and writing uh, in my quote unquote real, real jobs. My other, like other real job, one of my first real jobs was at a, actually at a brokerage firm in London. We, um, it was a shipping, like a ship brokerage. I actually started there more as a, more in like a chief of staff role, like admin role. And then I kind of rose up to a more of a communications research role. Um, and I was there for quite a few years. Um, and it was a very, uh, a lot of interesting kind of learnings from that role as well. And I think learnings around corporate culture and how different it is in the UK versus the US, because my next job was at Deutsche Bank in New York in 2010. And, you know, this is after the financial crash. So definitely like a very interesting. So how did that happen? Why did you want to go to New York and why New York and, and how, why the switch and of kind of finance? If I take a step back, London had always been kind of a spiritual home. I had lived there with my family when I was younger, and I moved there on my own kind of when I was had just kind of started university. I was working full time and still doing my studies um, in, in Helsinki and like um, exams and things like that. So I again, I think I mentioned this idea of like there was a limit to what I could achieve. And I felt that even even in London I, and I love London, I've been there probably at that point about five years and New York had always been, there's this kind of longer story. I'm the person who says long story short and then tells the long story anyway, but I had been in New York the first time when I was 16 with my friend who was modeling at the time from Finland. And she ended up not pursuing that career, but I kind of came with her and like secretly stayed in the model apartments and like went to Times Square and kind of that story when I was 16. And I was like, one day I'll live here. And New York was always really a dream, a dream of mine to, to live in the city. And I actually applied for this, it's called Mountbatten program. It's a program out of London that has about 150 people in each cohort. And we all travel, like there's a cohort from London that goes to New York and a cohort from New York that goes to London. And majority of the people were British in the cohort. Uh, some, only one Finn, some Scandinavians, some Australians, but we all got placed in uh, different roles here uh, in New York. But I wanted to try another career path and the ship brokerage was kind of like it was you know it was finance adjacent I would say um and I wanted to kind of see especially like investor relations really appealed to me and I did a couple of interviews and then um, landed at Deutsche Bank I think the role itself was more of a kind of mid-office it wasn't really the IR that I wanted the, the investor relations role but I didn't almost like I was working at 60 Wall Street and it was just like I don't know. It was in many ways a dream come true uh, for me to work there and uh, made some incredible friends. Only three of us, I think three of us out of the 150 are still here of that cohort. 
Still in New York, hanging out. Still in New York. Yeah, I bumped into one of the girls who's still here. It was pretty magical to see her after all these years. And so you were there at Deutsche Bank for what, a little over a year? Yes, a little over a year. And then in Finland, most people do their master's degrees. Like we kind of, it had always been uh, something that I wanted to do is it, I think I had I'd completed my bachelor's in University of Helsinki and I wanted to do my master's and, you know, I was in New York and I kind of decided to apply to NYU. NYU as a school was always another one where it's like, you know, I could, I could have only dreamt to have, have, have um, studied there. So I did get in, I studied uh, corporate communications um, at NYU and slightly different experience. People ask me how the college experience is different from, you know, for example, Europe or Northern Europe to um, US. And I would say one of the biggest things is like in Europe, it's quite theoretical. And especially at least my bachelor's was, whereas here, maybe it was because I was in one of the schools that it's more focused on people who are either already in the workplace or it was much more practical in terms of the skills that you need in a workplace here in the U.S. Uh, and I made some great connections. You're saying NYU was like you, your experience with, a, with an American college was that it was more practical than versus theoretical in Finland. Is what yes, absolutely. And you know, world-class professors. I'm still close to some of them. And then I made one of my best friends in the whole world. I always say she was, she made it all worth it. That's awesome. <laughs> I'm actually seeing her tonight. Uh, her name is Nadia. <laughs> She's amazing. But, uh, but yeah, it was a great experience. The only thing is like the classes were in the evening. So that like took some, just some getting used to. Um, but then that meant like I could do, I've always had different ideas for companies. So I could like, I literally had my, almost my, all of my like days uh, available to brainstorm different ideas already back then. So, so you spent your days, so you weren't working at the bank anymore. No, you were spending your days thinking about entrepreneurship ideas and then at night doing your master's at NYU. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, some ideas were better than others, but I think that's just kind of like, I decided that I want to spend that time wisely that I have. What were some of your ideas? Uh, oh God, I, I have had many. One of our ideas that we actually ended up building was an app for visitors who come to New York. And at the time, my best friend had, she's from Las Vegas, actually, but she's been in New York now over 15 years. But she had lived in Hong Kong for two years through her work. And she had seen a lot of kind of people just, of course, being interested in New York and visiting here, and especially more like Chinese visitors wanting to come to New York. So we had this idea that like, it could be interesting to like, tie it in, tie it all in. So we and this is good. I'm jumping a few steps. So we made this panda head that I wore at like, these are fascinating pictures, but I wore it at each like landmark in New York. We have to post these pictures now. So you wore a panda suit, like a panda suit with like an enormous head. Yes. It was actually just the head and my clothing. Yeah. And uh, my, oh, just my best the head, friend, just the head. And they're like, they're really interesting. Like I we're at Times Square, we're at Central Park. We're at like all their, basically it was supposed to be like an infatuation. But you wore this head to promote what is this like what the app icon looked like or something yes. like this was marketing for the app. And what was the name of the app? It was called May Rev. May Rev. But what's the panda for? So the panda was more just because it was geared towards it, Chinese visitors in particular. Oh, okay. And the app icon was actually, you know, those map icons. It was actually the panda's eyes. It was okay. really cool. Yeah. <laughs> and it was supposed to be like a, yeah, like I think infatuation is probably the closest one now, but like yeah. essentially 
the best sites, the best restaurants, the best um, clothing stores, things like that. So were you like holding a sign? Were you giving out like things to people, tourists in Times Square while you're wearing this gigantic (laughs) panda hat? Or what do you call it? It's not even a hat. It's like a- it literally, I'll, I'll, I'll send, I'll send the photos. It's basically, it was, we got, we got this head manufactured. Um, head, it was, uh, yeah. I still have it. And we actually had this idea of maybe we'll have also a small panda head. So we ended up manufacturing a small one as well. We, at that point though, we were all kind of, um, I was studying full-time. My best friend was working full-time. We had two other people who were involved and it did, it was one of those ideas. And then I think there was something around like Google and China like there was some like firewall that was built, like the idea of itself just like didn't make sense in um, anymore. It was it was great. We 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 built this app, but it was it was in the app store for a little while. I have so. this feeling that you're not the first person on the show to wear a really funny costume like that with a hat. <laughs> a hat. I remember saying this like head hat. What is it called? It's like a costume, and it was so similar. And I'm trying to remember who it was on the show that has that same experience. That's amazing. I'm have to think yeah. About it. And you know, yeah. I, I got to tell you, um, there's this artist called Bradley Theodore. He's like, pr- he's pretty well known here, at least here in New York. He, um, he, if I showed you his artwork, you'd recognize it. But I saw him at, a, at an event like some weeks ago. And I went up to him because there's a picture of him and I back in 20, this is like probably 14 or 15, when he wasn't well known at all. And he just happened to be at one of the restaurants that we were like, basically going to feature in the app. And there's photos of me and him and like people wanted to take photos with me and like, yeah, it was, it was fun. I'll definitely. That's hilarious. You remember me? Look, yeah. I have proof. Yeah, I know. Exactly. <laughs> now I have a real company. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> right. Um, and That's funny. so what other ideas did you have that you didn't end up doing? So one of the ideas actually was, was the origin story and we'll, we'll get to tiny organics, but it's um, the finished baby box. So it's an invention back home. I slept in this box basically uh, started at 1938 or since 1938 every new parent in Finland has gotten this box from the government and it's everything you need for a baby's first year all the really the government gives you this as a new mom and parents they're like here's a box congratulations on your new child here's a bunch of stuff to support yes and it has a a, a lot of clothing I sent you the link with the list of all the products that it has but like hygienic products toys you know teeters, things like that. And, and people think about the American dream. I mean, this is like a, this is the Finland dream. <laughs> it really? <laughs> yes. And it's, it's really an, and, and it's also a cardboard box. So Finland was a poor country in the thirties and forties. So it actually acted as a crib as well. It has a, it has like a mattress in it. Um, and now people, majority of people don't use it as a crib, obviously anymore, but like, it's like an honor to be a part of the box. It's also a big PO if you're a small company, but also like there's a design contest for the, for the box. It's kind of a, it's a, it's a big thing. It's called Ideas Box. That was one of the ideas that I had had kind of bubbling under for some time. And then some of the other ideas, I'll mention one more. I've always been fascinated. I think I've, if I wasn't building for baby and family and parent, I think I was, I would be building for like older adults. I think it's a, it's, it's a, a space that hasn't been, I think there could be, much more innovation and many more in, in terms of products, especially that could be more in that space. Do you have a baby? So I don't yet have a baby. My co-founder has a now, I think her son is three and three and a half. So she was, when we came together, she, she was actually 
um, had a company in the pet space and she, she knew she wanted to start a family and go into kind of more in the parenting space and children and family space. And we came together and she had, I basically shared my idea of the finished baby box with her. She's like, this sounds amazing. I want to, I want to start a family. And that's how we kind of came together. I say that the best things happen at rooftop parties. So in 2017 at a rooftop party, we like reconnected. We had known each other for some years prior. And it was almost like this like moment that we came together and the rest is kind of our, you know, our history. And as mentioned, her son is now three and a half. You guys were friends before and just kind of like what acquaintances or something. And then randomly sell each other on a rooftop and had the idea on the rooftop or how'd that happen? Basically we were, and this is, I think for you, for the listeners as well, I think is an interesting one in terms of the co-founder dynamic, how do co-founders meet? We had actually met through mutual friends who I know my husband through and my other, other best friend through. So this one person, Mark Hatch, shout out, like has really transformed my life, but we met through Mark and Peter and there was a great group of really incredible minds out of San Francisco. They actually founded the maker movement, which is a whole other story, but like the maker fair and like this idea that you can build anything. Her and I had met some years prior, but became more, I would say we were acquaintances. That's probably a better way of saying it. And then I think I started chatting with her husband or our mutual friend. And we kind of just started, just started kind of, I think it was happened very organically, started brainstorming. And he has mentioned, I shared about the Finnish baby box. She shared about her current experience with her prior company and then kind of her, you know, her and her husband wanting to start a family. Yeah. So how did you come up with the idea for Tiny Organics and what were some of the first steps? Yeah. So one of the ideas was, as mentioned, our kind of the finished baby box 2.0. We also had an idea for, we knew that we wanted to build something for parents and families and babies and really bring that important discussion to the forefront around kind of family's health. Uh, in the U.S. At what point were you, because I know you were an investor, just going back a little bit, I guess, you were investor relations at, what, how do you say it? Aristark Capital? Uh, Aristark Capital, yeah. We didn't right. talk about that role. Yeah. And you went from that into being an entrepreneur in residence at Human Ventures. So is that where you started the company? And what was their kind of involvement? Um, and what was your experience like with Human Ventures? Absolutely. So I actually, after Aristark, after Deutsche Bank, after Aristark, I actually went to Ascend Foundation and then, then started as, a, as an EIR at Human Ventures. And yeah, so Human Ventures, I mean, I can't kind of speak highly enough about them. I think they could change my life in many ways. But my co-founder and I had met and we were started looking for EIR roles um, at different funds. And we were kind of, you know, spoke to a few different funds. What really attracted us to Human Ventures was this idea, which I still is like, it's such an important concept in my life, but this idea of like the non-traditional founder or non-traditional career path. And they were looking for founders, human ventures were looking for founders that don't necessarily look like the typical founder. So I think you probably have heard from this conversation that I didn't have like the, you know, NYU is obviously a great, great school, but I didn't have like the Ivy League education. I didn't have, I didn't grow up in a place where it was, I moved to New York in 2010 without knowing a soul. Um, and really just kind of sheer, sheer will and persistence, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm here because of that. So that really attracted me to, to human. I think they really valued the diversity, of course, around whether it's uh, gender, diverse, gender, 
or ethnic, ethnic diversity, but also diversity of viewpoints, perspectives, experiences, which was really important. So why were you guys looking for EIR roles instead of just starting the company? My co-founder had found a company and kind of had kind of bootstrapped and self-funded her first company. And I think it was, we had chatted about it and we were saying we'd like to have more of a network around us from the early days. Um, and, you know, it's not for everyone, but I, for us, it was absolutely the right decision. And it's, so it's technically, you know, YC, Y Combinator is more like a pure incubator. I would say HV is more like a startup studio um, where we really, when we started there, we went through kind of their, um, it was like a Google venture style, like sprint model, where it was like six weeks of like six, a six week workshop. Well, we had, we knew that we wanted to build, like I was saying earlier, like for parents and children and families, but we didn't have a set idea when we, when we joined them and did this workshop and then different ideas. And we, I literally have, and I can share those pictures are fascinating, like post-it notes and like, you know, these, like we did like focus groups and we did, uh, you know, surveys and we did like essentially this, this incredible six week course almost or session where you knew that at the end of it you were pitching the fund for a pre-seed investment. And yeah, one of the ideas, so we had a couple of different ideas and one of them, as mentioned, was the finished baby box 2.0. One of them was actually a text message baby book because I think we all know, especially if we have siblings, I'm the youngest of three. My, my baby book is basically things in the middle of the book and nothing is <laughs> filled out. So I think I still love that idea. So, and we were early on, my husband is an, an early advocate of, texting so sms marketing it's obviously much bigger now but this was back in some years ago so it was it would have been a text message baby book and then one of the ideas was food and i think for all of us you know i had you know obviously and we shall talk more about like how the type of feeding style that we advocate for and you know you've experienced the food as well so in baby led weaning which i'll talk about which is quite prevalent in europe and then my husband actually had been at large CPGs prior. Yeah, we came together and, and realized we ha could have the biggest impact in childhood development through food. That idea kind of was born out of, out of those six weeks. And we, what happened after is what I loved about the process at human is that you quite quickly, like kind of quote unquote, get out the building. So like you really start to validate your idea. And I think once we, when we realized that we really had struck a chord was when we were, um, we had a group of moms here in New York City. How many were there? It's 15. Okay. And we were validating this idea of like, essentially real food for baby. At the time, you know, of course, the old school names like Gerber and Beechnut and others were in the market, but we felt like there wasn't really a product for, definitely not for the toddler age, but like essentially finger foods. Um, which is what baby led weaning is all about. We asked the moms, the 15 moms, text us everything they're feeding their baby for a week, you know, almost like a journal. And we realized that a lot of it, what they were feeding their children was, again, real whole foods was chopped up. Eggs and bread, scrambled eggs and bread. That's literally our go-to. <laughs> that's literally it. And yeah. we were like, what if we could create a product that's like resemble, resembles this? Right. We always, I think we always wanted to do plant-based and we're still plant-based, but exactly that. How could we have a product that could make parents' lives easier, um, chill and be organic, healthy, you know, grabbable. And yeah, so 
that was kind of the aha moment. We're like, okay, we think we have something here. And then the big moment for us is we sent one email out to a group called Park Slope Parents um, here in New York, in Brooklyn. And we were looking for founding families. We had hundreds of parents sign up and had to cap it at 100. And then this is a great story. My co-founder at this moment is probably eight months pregnant. And we are in Prospect Park in 90 degree heat. We, we enlisted a homeless guy to help us because we, the coolers were too heavy. But we, had, we also enlisted actually a chef to help us with some of the early skews or early meals. And we have pictures where we had like today's menu and it's like on a tree, like this kind of sign. And we're like sharing, we're like wearing tiny, t- tiny t-shirts. And we had, yeah, we had a- Tiny uh, t-shirts as in with the logo tiny, not actually tiny fitting. Yeah. No, Just no, for the, those tuning in, you guys yeah. are not wearing extra, <laughs> no. extra small t-shirts. No, we are the not. company is Tiny Organics. Absolutely. <laughs> tiny Organics t-shirts. With Thanks logo. for clarifying that. The, the that tiny Lee. logo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Lee. That's, that's important. Um, yes. Tiny Organics t-shirts. And the logo wasn't, the logo didn't look like what it looks today. We literally had, if you think about it now, we had parents- and, and caretakers, nannies and other and nannies come pick up food from complete strangers. And they were in an unmarked, unmarked cups. And of course, everything is in like ice. And we basically were testing at this point, probably about 10 SKUs and different versions. So we had different versions of different SKUs. And like we had the parents take the SKUs home or take the meals home. And some people tried it like on the spot and then quite rigorous feedback process just on Google Forms. Like, which ones did your child like the most? And which one did you like the most? And any, any other feedback? And we, we've only had 15 questions um, all in all. And then we chose, of that group of 100, we chose 25 power testers that we really, like, literally drove to their homes, delivered foods. We really knew these families well. That's kind of the product development process. I'm skipping a few steps. But those were the, I would say, and you kind of, this is why I think, Leah, another tip that I have for people is like document as much as you can because you forget. Like people ask me, like, how did you go from 100 customers to 1,000? I'm thinking, and like, wow, like I really need to think about that. You're you like, know? I don't remember. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Right, exactly. I'm like, maybe I'm, maybe I'm intentionally forgetting, but no. <laughs> right. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. With the rising costs of acquiring new customers, retention is a key focus for DTC brands. And creating outstanding customer experiences shouldn't be costly or a burden for your customer support team. This is exactly why Gorgeous is so great. They centralize all of your customer communications into one beautiful dashboard, personalizing each experience along the way, which not only helps you retain your customers, but also saves you time and increases revenue. Gorgeous works with over 9,000 brands, including Princess Polly, Olipop, and Boxu. So if you'd like to be one of them, head on over to Gorgeous.com and mention the Stairway to CEO podcast to get two months free. That's two months free of Gorgeous when you head over to Gorgeous.com. That's G-O-R-G-I-A-S.com and mention the Stairway to CEO podcast. Okendo is the new standard in customer reviews, and they want to make it simple and easy for you to collect user-generated content to use for your Shopify site. Retailers that use Okendo have seen an 81% increase in conversion rate when customers interact with reviews and UGC on their site. 
With Okendo, you can showcase UGC and reviews on your e-commerce site to build trust with your customer base and compel buying action. Okendo works with some of Shopify's fastest growing brands like Skims, Carbon38, Byte, Magic Spoon, so many more. So if you'd like to join these high growth brands, head on over to go.okendo.io slash stairway to CEO to book a demo and take advantage of getting 30 days free on Okendo. Thank you so much to our amazing sponsors. I hope you're able to take advantage of these exclusive deals designed just for you. Now let's get back to the show. This is a very common thread with a lot of founders that start companies. They have a focus group of a certain number of people, or they send out a survey. They just start with a core group of these power users, these power customers. I'm curious, and other people are too, how do you, what do you do to incentivize these people? Is it just free products? Are they getting some equity? Like, do you pay them? Right. I think there's a lot of questions probably around what the actual engagement looks like. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great question. For us, we de they definitely obviously got free product um, and qu quite a quite a bit of free product, but also it was very much mutually beneficial because we got some great insights, of course, from the families. We thought about a model early days where we would we would give equity to early customers, which I actually really like. I think for us, we just kind of couldn't at the time figure out how the structure would look like. But I'm a big I'm a big believer, like. Definitely your early employees and early advisors. And of course, like, you know, in addition to the founding team and investors, I really like the idea of incentivizing those early, early, early supporters, early believers. And we we weren't paying people, but I think that's another, in my mind, there's no obstacle. Like I I, I we we could have. For us, it was more free product. And then when we validated the idea was that would people initially with these hundred. Actually, no, it was the larger group. We asked people, would they pay for shipping? Because I think that's the other key piece here is like you said, a lot of people have that first group, whether it's a survey, whether it's a, you know, a focus group or a more kind of deeper relationship. But are, would people actually pay for your product? So I think that was our like shipping test and we had really high percentages were paying for it. So I think again, at that point, we kind of validated that this concept really worked. And the other thing, what's different from, with us with our product is that it's and, and you know this um it's frozen so it's made fresh ship frozen very similar to like a daily harvest so like the shelf life is much longer and there's really no prep required so i think that was also something parents really resonated with early on where it's like creative meals healthy organic meals but also there's yeah it's it's super convenient you guys really are like the daily harvest of kids food Right. Like, or toddler yeah. food. That's really interesting. I didn't put that together. I even had Rachel on the show from Paleo. Oh, amazing. <laughs> That's yeah. actually such a, that is exactly what it is. But I yeah. love it. You mentioned baby led weaning. I'm a mom. Yes. My kids just turned one year old. And I'm, what is baby led weaning even mean? Yeah, great question. I don't love the term because I think it, it, to your point, it, it, it basically could be baby led feeding. Essentially, it's this idea, it's an approach. And now I will go on my rant, uh, but no, <laughs> there was a baby food as a category is actually fully invented in the 1920s. And before that, human beings were thriving for many millennia eating real, real food, real whole foods. And only in the last hundred years have we started, and not just baby food, it's a lot of food systems, have we started kind of overcomplicating and overprocessing our foods. And we've all seen what that has you know, developed into, which is a lot of just chronic diseases, illnesses, a lot of obesity, um, a lot of, a lot of products out there are very sweet. 
a lot of baby food out there is very sweet. The sugar content is insane. I look, I mean, there's like 18 grams of sugar in one little four ounce packet of baby food. Yes. In the grocery store. Yes. That's insane. It really is. And again, even if you don't add sugars and a lot of baby food has added sugars, if you puree fruit, it's going right. to be sweet. And it's human beings- sugar. Yeah, yes. and all the flavors are like peach that apple in everything. I'm like, can we just have the greens? Like, really? Why do we have to have the sweet in everything? Because obviously now that's all the kid wants. Once they absolutely so hard to and go we, backwards. Yeah, absolutely. We have an innate preference as human beings for sweet foods anyway. So that just continues to prime the palate for sweet foods. So we actually are part of Partnership for Healthier America proud partner. It's Michelle Obama's Let's Move organization, sister organization. And we're part of their council called Veggies Early and Often. So this is the whole idea is that there's actually between four and seven months, there's a something called the flavor window. It's fascinating how the palate shapes. And that's actually when human beings are more open to new flavors and textures than, than ever after, basically. And we have, we launched our new product line, Tiny Beginnings, which is the larger pieces. And that's a pure kind of baby led weaning product, which is the whole idea with baby led weaning is that it's real food for baby. It's uh, fosters independence and it's, you let the baby lead essentially. So the idea is that they will like grab the food, play with the food, really engage all their senses. It can be messy. So we totally, we always advocate for, we didn't, we never mom shame or guilt. So if you want to do both purees and finger foods, great. And that's called combo feeding. And probably most of our customers do that. But like when you can, and when you have time, have your baby, like it's fascinating to watch. And obviously we have so much just these, this content every day that we, that, that gets shared from our parents. But when you see a child tasting something for the first time and really enjoying the food with, with their, with, with all their senses, essentially, whether it's the smell, even the textures as, as well. So this idea of like, yeah, you have your baby essentially eat on their own, know when they're full, just a lot of, again, and familiarize themselves with different textures and flavors. We had a, uh, and sometimes it can take time. We had a neonatal nutritionist early days pre-pandemic in one of our panels, and she said, new means no with children often. And if it's a new flavor, if it's a bitter flavor, you may need to introduce it multiple times. So this is another thing that we often talk about where, it's easier to introduce the sweeter flavors and the more pureed fruits of pureed foods. But this has like lifelong impact. The whole baby led though, like that's it's basically when I hear that, it's like that means they're choosing to what wean off of the baby food like blends, basically, right? The the mushy food. They're deciding, I want to start eating real food right now. Absolutely. And one thing, Lee, what, what is kind of counterintuitive, you can actually start with the finger foods already at five months, even four months. Yeah. See that freaked me out as a mom. Like you don't want your kid to choke. So I literally, we didn't start till way later. <laughs> yes. And you're touching on something, which is exactly what we've also heard from a lot of our parents. It, there's a lot of anxieties. There is no more it's, your child is not more likely. It's like gagging versus choking, whereas gagging is like a natural reflex when your baby's like learning to eat. But it's, it's, it, it, that, even that is scary. You know, you're like, oh no, what is happening? So, so I think for us, what we will have in the future is also like more like a smashed or smushed product. But essentially you can start finger foods as early as, you know, the, the idea is that we were actually tiny organics was uh, in a New York post article recently. And I'm like, if you get dragged by New York post, you've probably made it, but it talked about like how, like your child literally 
obviously the readiness readiness cues are important of course like like you'll know like when your baby has like neck and head control and all of it your baby can essentially grab a large piece and start gnawing on it at a young age but it's just it's so it's counterintuitive to what we've known for the last yeah 100 plus years and i think for us what we really want to just do we want to be a trusted friend trusted advocate you know whenever you're ready you know, we offer a different type of option that you see on the market. I think that's really key as well, where it's over 80% of our meals are vegetable forward. And again, as mentioned er, when we first started, really tasty food. Like it's really flavorful. The oatmeals are really popular, of course, like the banana uh, blueberry oatmeal, probably one of our best sellers. And apple pie oatmeal with the pie sign. Obviously, a funny and punny names as well. And then the new tiny beginnings line. Yeah, that's that's ultimately what we want to do. I I think make parents' lives easier, make children's lives healthier, be accessible as well. Like I think that's another one where we are purely we purely sell online right now, but we do look to go into retail, and we wouldn't want to be building what we're, what we're building if it wasn't for for all families. And you guys have raised venture capital for this. How much have you guys raised so far, and what has your experience been like? We've raised. 13 and a half million so far. And it's interesting, that's a great question. We actually raised our seed round when my co-founder was pregnant. Was it over Zoom? That actually, actually, the seed was, <laughs> I know, the seed wasn't actually. Uh, and it's telling because also we are a baby food company. So obviously, you know, that was, I think, you know. A challenge of itself. Well, exactly. But I feel like maybe people were more open to, to you know, uh, one of us being pregnant because we are in the baby food space or uh, baby right. space, I should say. Right. Like if they're lo- they're looking at the category in general, then if you're pregnant, it's not such a, you know, pain versus if you're not doing something in the category and you're pregnant, it's a little tougher. Probably. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yikes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. The shame so, is like that, but I'm curious how many investors said, let me ask my wife and talk to her about this. Well, there were, there were definitely a handful who said that for sure, but I will say this Lee going back to the seed round, it was really encouraging to hear. Like, I think the, the, and by the way, you know this, but like research shows that more diverse teams uh, have higher returns, right? And for us, we never really, we we had like really good reactions generally to what we were building, who we were. Um, no one said outright, at least, that they were looking for a different type of founding team. And I think we also actually had early days, a team of toddler dads who were doing baby led weaning with their toddlers. So like, I think that was really interesting as well. We're still kind of talking to them. Um, and. So, and, and, and one, a couple of founders, I remember specifically had had, um, or had babies at the time and they really, really, really got what we were building. And we're saying there's nothing like this in the market. Um, and then the series A was a little different. It's always with the seed, you're raised on a dream and the team. And with the A, you're raised on metrics. And we had had, because we, we launched nationwide in January, 2020. So right into the pandemic. And obviously we're very fortunate that we were able to meet a real need, need meet a real need at the time, but we were of course, fresh frozen and shipped directly to your home. So we actually saw a really pandemic, I think if anything, accelerated our growth. So by summer of 2021, when we closed our A, we had had, you know, really, really, you know, good growth. It's never easy, but it's, it was, it's generally been a, a really, really great process for us. Also, one thing I will mention around diverse teams and boards, it's not a mandate, but it's been important for my co-founder and I that we have our of our um, board is women 
and then half of our cap table is women. And we have multiple moms in the team, also on the board. Uh, that's important as well. So like, I think we're very proud of that fact. Yeah, that's awesome. And so what has been one of the biggest challenges? Obviously, there's tons of things that can go wrong and that you guys have had to overcome to build this business. But what would you say has been one of the, the biggest challenges that you didn't expect and was really tough to get through and that you've learned a lot from? I think this is going to be kind of a broad answer, but I think scaling the company, Human Ventures, when they looked for EIRs, they were looking, to, looking for second-time founders. And at the time I was a first-time founder and I remember thinking like, oh, well, you know, of course they were open to first-time founders, but they, their preference was second-time founders. And I totally understand why now, because there's so many things, whether it's like, we talked about fundraising, whether it's advisory boards or advisors, whether it's teams, when to scale the team, you know, what does the org chart look like? What roles are most important in which companies, manufacturing, ops, you know, marketing, product development, all the different pieces, you kind of, I've learned so much throughout this process that I'm almost like kind of what we were saying earlier before we started the recording is like, how can we, I really have been thinking of, even if it's tactical advice, how can I share some of this advice? And I think the hard part has been, which is also the exciting part is like, how do we scale? We're now, you know, a team of 15 people and we have three, three third-party logistics providers and we ship nationwide and like we own our manufacturing, like all those things, I think I would be able to map out much easier now. Whereas when you start, you're kind of just like, it's an exciting thing that the road is kind of open. Right. But you don't really have a roadmap or a framework to, op to operate from. Is that what you're Absolutely. saying? Absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's exactly. And like, I think, I think it's much needed. I haven't, I know there's a lot of advice for entrepreneurs, but I think the critical mass is still in kind of pre-seed, even before pre-seed, uh, a lot of people with ideas, but like a lot of this, I think comes down to having people around you. Like you don't need to do it yourself. Like you asked, like, why did we look for EIR roles? I think that's one way of doing it, but like, I think advisors, and we have some really key advisors around the table, actually the former CMO at Daily Harvest, Patrick Yee, is shout out to Patrick, um, has really, um, I really evolved as a leader because of him. Um, and he's been really been able to share a lot of the learnings that he had had at DH and elsewhere. And I think that's the thing is if, I, that's my, probably my biggest advice for people is like, try to find someone when you know what you're, what you're building. First of all, when you, when you have an idea, definitely have like three trusted people and sh share, share it with them and get thoughts. But like, when you know which vertical you're building in, get someone, get, get an operator in who's been building in that space and share the idea with them. And I think like, but yeah, I think, I think the, the most challenging part has been, and I can give, I, I can try and give out a more specific example as well. But right now, as I think about it, what's most challenging is that scaling. And that's also the most exciting piece of it. But I think that's the thing is like, we're between series A and B now. And it's like, there's, you know, there's a lot of things that we need to, you know, figure out in the next, you know, months and years. Yeah, it's a really exciting time. But I will say like, I do think there is an opportunity for like series B founders to advise A founders and A founders, seed founders and seed founders, you know, pre-seed founders and so on. I, I think there's real opportunity there. 
to share are, some of these learnings. I'm curious, you know, what are some, we haven't really talked too much about mindset, but what are some limiting beliefs that you've had to overcome to get to where you are? Definitely like, am I, am I kind of worthy of doing this? I think because of the non, non-linear background, I kind of felt like I always hacked it together. I think the one, my big, one of my, my biggest strengths is really networks. And I hate the word networking, but like connecting with people, connecting people to each other, meeting new people. That's really being in rooms with interesting people. That's like all I want to do with my life. So I think I did have that. And I always say with networking, like start before you need a network. And I've had a few key people that I met here early, early on when I moved here in 2012 that have been like totally instrumental in, 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 in building my network. But I think definitely this idea of like, am I meant to be doing this? You know, uh, should it be me? And I've realized it really is your like, just turn that into a strength. And those experience that you have, whether it's for me, like I'm an immigrant, I had a really hard visa journey, which I don't talk about so much, which could be a whole other topic. Totally. But like <laughs> being an immigrant, being, being English, a second language, you know, I, I hide it well, but English is in my second language, is, is in my first language. Being a woman, maybe being undermined sometimes. All these pieces, I think, are things that I kind of had to overcome. And I think, especially early days, that's why I think I've, I have this like inner confidence now having done this. Now, not even we're, we're, of course, building, but like having done kind of the early stages once. Whereas I, I really feel like that's where, that's the message that I want to get across is that like that non-traditional path. And even like my age, I'm turning 37. And, you know, there's a 30 and a 30 list that I'm, and I meet a lot of incredible founders that are much younger than I am. And I'm like, you know, that's their journey. This was my journey. And like, I just like, it took me, it took me some time to get here. And there's, and it's actually, you know, I was reading about like the average age of an entrepreneur, like an entrepreneur at a certain level. And I think it was in, in the forties. Well, I think the average age of a millionaire is 65 or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I think you have some time. Yeah. <laughs> totally. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Um, amazing. Well, your story is really inspiring. It definitely, you know, my husband is German, so I can, I totally can relate from, uh, you know, having witnessed, I think a lot of from his experiences of the visa situation. I mean, it's, it's really can be a nightmare and it's painful. And this country is not an easy place to try to live and work and build a life. No, no. And that's another thing that I definitely want to do in the future. Just make the information more easily digestible and more readily available. I went deep into like the amyhelp.com forums and like, they really helped me kind of you know, I had, and, and by the way, also, if you don't have the means to have an attorney, I mean, that's a whole other piece. Like it, it really took years and, uh, but, um, but yeah, that's, a, that's, a, that's definitely something that I'm so, so, so passionate about. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for sharing your awesome journey and story and building tiny organics. I'm a fan and what's next for the brand and what is some final advice you have, uh, for aspiring entrepreneurs tuning in? Um, I think next steps for us is just kind of growing and scaling the company. We have an incredible team. The team actually flew in last week to New York for our first IRL, you know, offsite uh, since the pandemic life. started <laughs> in yeah. real life. And, you know, it was just fantastic. I'm still on such a high from last week, but I think growing and scaling the company, 
Uh, we have some new product lines coming out. Uh, we are, um, as mentioned, we ship nationwide already, but we'll have some more, um, kind of, I think another manufacturing site opening up. Um, and that's been one of the, probably one of, one of the most rewarding moments is last July when we closed the series A, we visited the manufacturing facility, the new one that we have for the first time. And it's just, it's just incredible to see what great human beings can create together. And I think that, again, the meaningful impact that I feel that we are creating just really kind of spurs us on. And, uh, and yeah, so really excited, really excited for tiny. And I think last piece of advice for aspiring entrepreneurs is just like, literally, I just honestly, it's kind of maybe trite, uh, trite but like believe in yourself. I, I think that's my, my biggest piece is it def definitely it's not easy. Meet as many people as you can, cold email, cold call, like no one's going to be upset. And that maybe one, one out of 20 people will be upset that you cold email, that most people will be open to talking to you. And I think talk about your idea, wear crazy costumes, whatever you need to do, like guerrilla, I'm a big believer in guerrilla marketing, especially in the early days and also in the later stages. But I think believe in yourself, build your networks. The US is a great place to start your company. I think there's a lot of people here with openness to new ideas, definitely capital as well. But like, I would say openness to, to new ideas and this kind of mindset of encouraging different people uh, on their, on their journeys. So uh, I think that's, those are my main things. And please, anyone can reach out to me with any Sophia Tiny Organics, any tips, any advice that I can share. I would love to do that. All right. Letting go of the email, letting everybody know how to reach you. That's awesome. Thanks for being so open and willing to chat <laughs> with some of our listeners who might have additional questions. Thank you so much, Sophia. Really appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.